When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to the Jordanorama edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I am Kathy O'Neill of mathbabe.org. I'm filling in for Felix Salmon of Fusion, who is off in Utah or something like that. I'm joined, as always, by Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hello, Kathy. Hello, Jordan. And also, this week, it's very special, another Jordan! Special guest Jordan Ellenberg, a math professor at the University of Wisconsin and the author of How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. Thanks for joining us, Jordan. Thanks for having me, Kathy. Today, we're going to be talking about the risk involved in becoming an academic in a world where tenure is rare and difficult thing to find. We're going to be talking about tenure in general and tenure specifically in Wisconsin, where Jordan Ellenberg is a professor. Um, We'll also be talking about the lotteries, how to design lotteries, how to beat lotteries, and at least in one special case, how the lotteries were beaten. But first, we're going to be talking about Uber, because Uber is in the news again, and we can't stop ourselves. Jordan Weissman, what happened this week? Sort of a version of Uber's worst nightmare. So uh, this week, it became public that the California Labor Commission had ruled that one of Uber's drivers, just one of them, counted as an employee. As you may know, Uber does not like to refer to its drivers as employees. It likes to think of them as independent contractors who just happen to use its app to connect with customers, with passengers. And this saves them all sorts of money on things like oh, I don't know, having to pay minimum wage, having to pay social security taxes, uh, payroll taxes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all sorts of regulations. The California commission basically said, nope, you more or less supervise this person. You have a very large say over how they do their job, whether or not they're allowed to do their job. You are this woman's employer. And as a result, you have to reimburse her about $4,000 of expenses that she uh, accumulated over her only two months driving. This decision is not final. It is going to be appealed. And we, I would just want to say that up top, this is not the beginning of the end necessarily. It's going to go to another court, which can fully just take the case basically from the beginning. It can totally discard everything this commission said and look at the facts fresh. But nonetheless, it contributes to this growing fear, I think, among certain people in the tech community and certainly at Uber, that maybe the business model they've relied on for this their massive $50 billion revaluation is not going to survive the regulatory risk that we've talked about many times on this show. Okay, let's back up for a second. Now, is this the first time that the court has thought about this question? No, I mean, there is a class action actually in California going right now where the judge ruled that they couldn't decide whether or not that Uber's workers were employees or Uber's drivers were employees. So they said it has to go to a jury. In California, it's a very blurry question. It's mostly based on state law. But I think 
So are other states also weighing in on this? There have been other states that have decided that they are independent contractors. But there was actually a a pretty insightful comment from a U.S. senator, uh, believe it or not. Uh, But Mark Warner put out a statement afterwards saying the feds need to come up with a new standard of what counts as an employee. And I think that's the big issue is that, you know, it's not just Uber. There are all these startups that are relying on this model of contingent labor. And we just there is no real obvious guidance for who is an employee and who is not. So it sounds like there's agreement that the current legal framework is not adequate for figuring out whether these people are employees or not. Is that, but is, is Uber's theory that given that there's no legal framework, there should just be no regulation on what they do? No, I think that Uber thinks there is a framework and that within that framework, these people are not employees. That's their argument is that if you look at the many, many, many factors that you're supposed to balance to decide whether or not someone is an employee, that in the end, these people are freelancers, essentially. Can we go through a couple of the most obvious things that like make you an employee or don't make? I know one of the things that the Uber likes to argue is that they set their own hours. So that's not like an employee. I mean, that's one of them, whether right. or not you set your own hours. But the IRS has a 20 point checklist hmm. that they even say at the beginning of this, this is these aren't all the factors that right. you are supposed right. to consider. I mean, I you know, I actually I just have it right in front of me. I can pull a few of them up. I'm not gonna keep reading them and reading no, them because no, it'll take forever. But must the individual take instructions from your management staff regarding when, where, and how work is to be done? Does the individual receive training from your company? Is the success or continuation of your business somewhat dependent on the type of service provided by the individual? Is there a continuing relationship between your company and the individual? Okay, so yada what, yada yada. I had that... three yeses and one no for those, by the way. <laughs> But there are 15 more. So, okay. And that's only the beginning of what it, of the IRS's 20-point checklist. And, I, you know, again, I think it's blurry. Here's the question I'm interested in hearing from you guys. Let's say the courts eventually do decide these yeah. drivers are employees. Is that a good thing? Because up until now, I was pretty certain in my mind it would be. But I'm going to say, after I saw this decision came down, I started feeling ambivalent about it. I'm going to do the thing that opinion journalist isn't supposed to and say my my personal feelings about this are sort of in flux right okay. now. And I'll come back to that why, but I'm curious. I just want to straw poll. You know, should they be employees or not in your mind? You know, I've thought about this a lot and I've blogged about it. And one of the comments on my blog that I've liked the most is somebody pointing out that the underlying innovation that Uber is offering mm-hmm. is the app. Yeah. Like they're not making driving more efficient. Like they're not creating a technology that makes you get to from place A to place B more efficiently. The only thing they're really providing for the customer that's an innovation is that I can hail it, hail a car on my phone. But I mean, any taxi service can do that. Right. And the other taxi services now are doing that. Right. So they have done that. That's sort of like their contribution is like, hey, let's do this on our phones. But I think that's kind of where it ends. I think in terms of like how much protection these people should have who are drivers. Like, why shouldn't they have employee protections? Jordan, I'm curious to hear your, on your end of it. I mean, I guess what's striking for me is this issue of the minimum wage. Like, if it's a fact that these people who are working essentially full-time of their own choice or not, um, and who's when you subtract out the depreciation on their car and the tolls and all the expenses that they have, if they are, in fact, working full-time jobs at less than the minimum wage, I think for people who are sort of against the minimum wage, they would say, oh, that's great. If they freely enter this contract, they should be able to work for as little as they want. But that is contrary to what minimum wage statute says. So if the effect is whether they're officially employees or not, that you have a large population of people working for two bucks an hour, like, I guess I don't think that's good. I think that's why we have a minimum wage law to prevent people from entering into those kinds of contracts. And that's kind of where my gut has been, and it may still be there. Like I said, I feel slightly ambivalent, but here's why I'm not so sure these days, which is that I don't think Uber's only uh, innovation is the app. I think part of what they recognized is that having a certain density of drivers in an area makes people use taxis. If you 
essentially bust through the regulations either by ignoring them or lobbying or whatnot and make it possible for more people to drive. Um, you're going to change the transportation infrastructure in a city like San Francisco um, because it's not just about being able to ha hail people. It's having just cabbies available sure. um, and on the streets driving. And part of that has been their labor model, being able to just have people sign up and drive and kind of do it at their leisure. Um, Beyond that, I think there's sort of a principle of re with regulation, which is that when an industry is sort of in its cradle, you don't regulate it that heavily. You kind of want to see where it's going to go. And that's, that's a principle that sometimes people talk about antitrust. You don't want to start coming down on a, a, a young industry for monopolistic behavior necessarily before you even know how it's going to develop. Um, I wouldn't call this a new industry. Though. Well, that's the question then. Is, is, there, is this a, a becoming a mature industry or is it not? And I, don't, I don't really know. It's, that's the stuff that's floating in my head. I just think our whole notion of maturity is going to have to change because, I mean, companies that are brand new are valued in the tens of billions of dollars and become major players almost instantly. It's like if we think, when you think of a cradle, you think of a baby, but if like one out of a hundred babies like became like a sort of eight foot monster with giant teeth who like went around <laughs> eating the rest of the family, then we would think differently about what it meant like to have a baby and like what, what, where, what things belonged in the cradle. And speaking of valuation, thank you for uh, mentioning that. Like to what extent does this California ruling actually threaten Uber? Like has anyone done the back of the envelope calculation on what would happen if all of California Uber drivers or even all of Americans Uber drivers were awarded these kinds of penalties? I don't think anyone's done that math yet. Again, this woman got $4,000 in expenses reimbursed for driving about, I think, eight weeks. Again, Uber technically right now does not have to pay its drivers gas money, for instance. So they'd have to go back like, oh, well, we're going to reimburse everyone for all the gas they've been purchasing. It would obviously throw a kink into things. I think that the bigger concern is just how it fundamentally changes their business model. You suddenly have a company that has to have a giant HR department you know, right. to manage 160,000 drivers, paying their payroll taxes, uh, making sure that they're working in certain conditions and abiding by all the specific rules you have to when you have employees. And it's, yeah, I think it would shave money off their valuation. Megan McArdle suggested that you know, Uber would basically disappear from the, you know, from the world if that happened. I'm not so sure about that, but it would certainly be a blow to the company. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. We're going to move on. I'm going to talk a little bit about tenure, even though I think the Jordan to my right, Jordan Ellenberg, <laughs> is more of an expert than I am. But it's coming up this week because there's been quite a few direct attacks on the tenure system, at least in Wisconsin, by Governor Scott Walker. As I understand it, it hasn't officially changed yet, but the people that are in charge of tenure have switched to something that's essentially appointed, uh, politically appointed. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated story and it's like somewhat technical and incremental. So I think a lot of places are reporting the story as like all of a sudden, like people used to have tenure and now they don't. It's not quite like that. What's happened is that the authority for control of tenure has shifted from state statute to this board of regents, this governor appointed board. That in itself is actually the way most other states do it. So that by itself is maybe not such a big deal. I think what people are more concerned about is a technical point about the conditions under which you can fire a tenured faculty member. You guys like technical stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you'll love this. There is a question of whether it is a financial emergency standard, which is the way it is now and in most other states, or whether it is a program modification standard. Right. Which means maybe if you think some group of people in like, you know, Asian American studies or something like this, or maybe, oh, maybe we don't need to do this anymore. We can just like 
fire everyone. Right. That's the difference. Right. And this is on top, of course, the the slow-moving indirect attack on tenure that we've been talking about, where we have more and more adjunct faculty. We have more and more people that never get tenure. They're on non-tenure lines. Um, it brings up the question of, like, really basic. Like, what is tenure for? And is it an academic freedom thing or is it something else? I mean, I don't know. Like, I've never had tenure. Even when I was a professor, I didn't, I didn't stay for that. Um, and, and having left that, the academia and, like, worked in industry, it doesn't even make sense to me anymore. I don't remember what the point was. Right. So tenure, like the university itself, is a lot of different things bundled up into one, right? Like, the university is, like, a football team with calculus classes that, like, <laughs> also has a climbing wall and a cafeteria. You know, tenure, one of the things it is, it's a guarantor of academic freedom for people who actually have something to worry about. You know, somebody like me who teaches math, like probably I'm not going to say anything in my classroom or do anything in my research that's going to make me a political target. But another thing it is, and one of the most fundamental things, it's a form of compensation. It's Mm -hmm. one of the ways that we're paid. I mean, professors by and large don't make a lot of money. I mean, so are paid not so much in dollars, but in job security and in autonomy, right? It's basically the only kind of job I can think of in the American labor market where you have job security, but you don't have a boss. That's very special. Yeah. I want to even back up a little bit, which is um, just to deal with one of the confusions about tenure that comes up frequently, which is people imagine it as kind of a lifetime appointment. Um, But it's not really. You can still be fired if you have tenure. There's a due process uh, aspect of it. There's a certain set of things that the university has to do and has to prove in order to fire you. And it, it does happen. I mean, there are tenure professors who lose their jobs for cause, but it does protect you from these things like them just getting rid of the Asian studies department. The thing that worries me about this is that Wisconsin's, or really Scott Walker, you know, they're a very conservative uh, governor with presidential ambitions, has just decided they're going to eliminate a traditional protection that has existed in the state for a long time um, and put it in the hands of this board of chancellors, which is packed with conservatives, essentially. So there's fear that they're going to start basically doing, you know, reconstruction surgery on the the university system. Jordan, I'm curious to hear your opinion on this, but I can't imagine this isn't going to lead to a flood of talent leaving Wisconsin because people are just going to see the writing on the wall. I mean, do you think that because people will be able to still get traditional tenure in other places without the threat of this conservative board of regents hanging over them, they're going to look for a job in Minnesota, for instance? Or Actually, one of my colleagues in chemistry like just left for Minnesota, actually, now that you mention it. But I think flood is the wrong word, actually. And I think this is one of the things that makes it difficult to talk about and to be active about because it's a little more like failing to maintain your highways or your subway systems. The effects are not immediately going to be dramatic. It's much more incremental than that. So I would describe it more as that, um, you know, people will maybe be like 5% more likely to leave and it's like 5% harder to hire people. It's still a great university and you can't turn that around overnight. I mean, Kathy, you went, you went to Berkeley and you know that they've been under Many fin- financial pressures have many crises over the years, but it's still Berkeley, right? I mm-hmm. mean, it's still it, it's actually pretty hard to make a great state university not great at all. But you can make it slightly less great than it is. And that's, I think, what we're facing. So some set of people will leave who otherwise wouldn't have. But it's not going to be a mass rush for the exits, or I would be very surprised if that's what happened. And some people make the argument that 
you know, you shouldn't poach, like, hey, the rest of you, don't poach the professors here because then we will be weak and you're next. And I think there's value in that argument because if you think about it, if all the states that have a Scott Walker wannabe and sees Scott Walker's um, agenda, like, working, start doing it in their states, then, like, you know, some number of states, larger than one, will have their state schools be weakened by this. And so maybe instead of just voting with your feet, maybe there should be some kind of working together among the academics across the country to try to push back against this. Another argument I've seen from Rebecca Schumann, who writes for Slate, is almost the opposite, which is instead of uh, focusing on how to kind of preserve whatever remnant of the old system there is and kind of leave Wisconsin alone, that Wisconsin should really start looking towards the future, try to figure out how to build a post-tenure university. And her reasoning is that because tenures become so rare, because so many professors are adjuncts and have little to no hope of ever getting that job security anyway, that Wisconsin now has an opportunity to think, okay, how do we make a system of academic labor that works for everyone now that the old assurances are gone? And I, I mean, do you think, is that just kind of Happy well, talk, or I, I'm, is it... I'm glad you brought that up because, like, the other side of it, when I'm, I'm not anti-tenure, but I do want to throw in the, the fact that it is really a dwindling supply. And there's lots of complaints by people who had three postdocs and sort of never see the actual tenure job that the system itself is needs revamping. So maybe that's another I mean, approach. You're actually inside the beast. I mean, what do you think about this? <laughs> right. This? So, so one thing we have to keep in mind is it's so easy for us to like talk about higher education as if the most elite precincts of higher education are what higher education is, right? Like how often do do you read about Harvard and Slate compared to, which is a very small slice, as is the University of Wisconsin, right? So at the University of Wisconsin, Madison, where I teach, like tenure is not rare and our teaching is not predominantly done by adjuncts, but it's a very special part of the higher education system that's not at all Representative. There are 17 campuses of the University of Wisconsin, and yeah. each one, uh, and, and each one is different. And tenure plays out differently in each of those places. So, I mean, the rules now are the same. We don't know if that'll still be true in the future. So, I mean, it's not obvious to me that tenure has to dwindle. I don't think that's a natural law. Yeah, by any means. But given that it already sort of has, is there an opportunity in disguise to figure out a new system that's going to replace the one that is outside of? elite schools like Wisconsin kind of failing or falling by the wayside? I mean, obviously, I think we should always strive to, like, not do things a certain way just because we've always done them. On the other hand, at the same time, we shouldn't abandon things that are working, like, just because um, just because they're kind of old. I mean, after all, I mean, the University of Wisconsin, I admit I'm sort of coming back here to talking about the campus at Madison of the sort of businesses or entities in our state, the University of Wisconsin is the one that has an international reputation and has, so to speak, more customers that it can even accept, like people from all over the world trying to come there to study. It's a lot more successful than most Wisconsin businesses at doing that. And I'm not sure that its model is not working. I guess one thing we should think about, going back to your point that tenure is a form of compensation, is ask ourselves, well, do do the teachers that don't have tenure do they have compensation in other ways? And I think the answer is, so far, not at all, right? The the non-tenured teachers, for the most part, are paid poorly compared to the tenured teachers. So, so far, we haven't come up with actually a reasonable alternative. Right, in dollars, yeah. too. Yeah, just just purely in salary, their salaries are lower. I think there's also, since I have been talking about the potential upsides, I should say one of the reasons this is all very frightening is it's not just an attack on tenure. 
in, in Wisconsin, it, it's sort of part and parcel of a larger attack on the university system there, which Walker has cut $250 million from it recently. One of the reasons they're making these changes seems to be so that they have more flexibility to now cut departments and things so that they can then adjust to these changes that, that are coming through the budget. And it seems to be just sort of a devaluing of the entire University of Wisconsin system which has been actually one of the most functional things in that state. I worked there as a reporter for a while. It really plays a role in Wisconsin life that, that's essential. And it's kind of amazing to watch a governor just say, eh, <laughs> forget all that. Yeah. And what's true is, as I said, the university has a lot of things bundled together. It's an educational enterprise. It's also a scholarly and research enterprise. I think we have shifted so much of the cost onto the students and their parents who they're in it for the teaching, right? They're in it for the education. I understand why they're asking, why are we and we alone going into debt to pay for the scholarly enterprise? I mean, that is the part of it that used to come more from the state, right? And now we've decided that much more of the cost should be shouldered by the 18-year-olds. And at the same time, I think you're the one, Jordan, to my right, Ellenberg, <laughs> told me that Scott Walker at the same time um, tried to remove an overseer for for-profit colleges, or a regulator. Is that what you're saying? Regulator yeah, the for... regulator. Yeah. yeah, of course which, he would. Yeah. Which I guess they had to put back after some outcry. Really interesting. We'll keep an eye on that. Jordan, Jordan Ellenberg, can you talk to us about lotteries? Yeah. Now, whatever reputation for having good sense I've created in the first minutes of this podcast, <laughs> I'm now going to destroy <laughs> by talking about why it can be a good idea to play the lottery, something that I think goes against like all reason and common sense. Yeah, I, I'm aghast that we're discussing this. <laughs> I, I just want to make sure if people know that this is partly at least coming from your book, How Not to Be Wrong, which is a great book. I loved it. Yeah, this is a story that I came across while researching the book, and I sort of couldn't believe that nobody had done it in a long-form way. It's so crazy. So it's a story about, this is done just a couple of years ago. It was revealed that a group of undergraduates from MIT had made about $3.5 million playing the Massachusetts State Lottery, which you are not supposed to be able to do, <laughs> right? And what had happened is that Massachusetts had redesigned its lottery. They found out that people had stopped playing because... People weren't winning, and they got depressed, and receipts were down. And so they, they changed the rules to make it seem like a better deal for the player. Um, but they did too well. They actually made a game that was a good deal for the player. Sometimes. Sometimes, that's right. So they had a deal where if the jackpot went above a certain level, it did what was called rolling down. If nobody won the jackpot, all that money would roll down into the lower tier prizes and make them much bigger than they were on a normal day. Okay. And it turned out that on those days, if you played only on those days and on no other days, you actually stood to make a fair amount of money. Why I'm the non-math person here, explain to me what actually changed. How did Massachusetts mess this up? And presumably, did they not have a consultant? Did they not have a math PhD? <laughs> Look at this first. I'm just going to say the thing I do understand about this, um, and let Jordan explain the, the more complicated parts, but... In any lottery, in most lotteries, there isn't just one jackpot. Usually there's, like, if you get two out of the three numbers right, or if you get, you know, three out of six of the numbers right, there's, like, lesser prizes. Okay. And they're, so they're much more probable, and they're much smaller jackpots. And the, the point of the, the situation that Jordan is describing is that those things that are more probable, the, the payoff got higher. Exactly. So they were both pretty easy to win, and they actually carried a substantial monetary prize. Interesting. And the most important thing to realize is that the state did not lose money on this, even on those days. Can you explain that, Jordan? Right. So this took me a long time to understand because when this story was reported, there was a big front page story in the Globe. It was reported as these guys figured out a way to beat the House and scam the state. Um, but the truth is the state 
takes 80 cents in revenue out of each lottery ticket that's sold. It's as simple as that. It takes 80 cents, and the rest is eventually going to go out in prizes. So the state doesn't care who wins the lottery at all. The state just cares how many tickets it sells. Interesting. So in a way, by making it easier, did Massachusetts actually make more money? They came out, I think, about $10 million ahead of where they would have had this scheme not existed because those guys were buying 200,000 tickets a drawing. So what is the incentive for the state to make it any harder? Shouldn't the state then always want to make it open these opportunities so people will at least have the illusion that they're somehow going to game the system correctly and win? Well, the money has to come from somewhere, right? Yeah. So where the money came from was the people who were playing the lottery on the regular days. Okay. So essentially what had happened was that money was being transferred from the people who played the lottery on the regular days to these large cartels. There were actually three of them who played on the good days, and then the state kind of reaches in and takes 80 cents each time. On both days. So would what would happen if everyone just started playing on the higher expected value days? Would, I can that, would the system fall apart, or what would... The good days don't show up unless there's a, a substantial number of people oh, okay. buying tickets on the bad days. Okay, I see. Right. It's basically filling up a pot of water with drips, and then when it's about to tip over, you run over. Okay, I see. So that's how it ensures, it, it keeps the whole system from falling that's in on good. itself. That's good. I should have used that in my book. <laughs> <laughs> so this lottery doesn't happen anymore. So explain why it's closed, since everyone wins. Well, everyone wins except the people who lose, right? So, right. so the re- I mean, the reason it's closed is because it was exposed. It was because there was publicity about what the system actually was, that essentially Massachusetts had licensed a giant virtual casino where these kids from MIT were the casino. They were the ones taking in profits. Massachusetts was taking the taxes, and the losers were essentially the people who were the regular lottery players who were the equivalent of the slot machine players at the casino. But the regular players did not want to be in that position. Once they understood what was actually going on, then the game was up. Yeah. And I think that kind of leads us to the bigger problem with lotteries that we typically talk about, which is that they are more or less a tax on the poor. It it tends to be low-income people who play them. And so in this case, you're actually having a lot of low-income Massachusetts residents having their money transferred to rich kids from MIT who figured out how to gain the system. So I guess it looks especially bad in that respect. And I think the interesting ethical question here is, to compare it to what we started with talking about, we've been talking about whether people who have time because they're unemployed and don't have a lot of money should be able to work for Uber for a buck fifty an hour, if that's what it amounts to. Should they be able to enter into that kind of transaction or should that be barred? In some sense, there's some formal similarity here, right? Like, how do we feel about the government encouraging people to enter into this transaction that's not financially in their interest. Well, I I kind of feel like this is a success story in the sense that what you've just explained to me is that once it was explained that you're just giving money to MIT nerds, (laughs) people were like, I'm not going to do that. Like, two questions. First of all, why don't all lottery players think say that all the time and stop <laughs> right. playing the lottery because usually that's true anyway. And the second question is, you know, can we can we depend on people to understand this is a raw deal for me if we publicize things like Uber doesn't really pay you that well. It's a question of like how much can you change people's behavior with new information. What's interesting is there's like literally like 80 years of like super heated controversy among economists about why people play the lottery. Like economists, their, their whole job is to be puzzled about people not acting like <laughs> economists, right? Yeah. That's what they do. And I think the, I mean, there's lots of theories, none of which are compatible with each other, but I think the most popular one, this is what Emily Oster thinks about it. She wrote her senior thesis about this, actually, is fundamentally that people are playing for the entertainment value, that people are not actually deluded about whether it's a good financial bet, but that there's some amount of satisfaction that comes from the gamble. What I compare it to in the book actually is another negative expected value bet that people take is starting a business, right? If you open a restaurant, 
that is a negative expected value thing to do. Most of the time, you're going to fail. I don't care how tasty your barbecue sauce is, you're probably going to fail if you open a restaurant. And the expected value of that relative to, let's say, going and getting a job at somebody else's restaurant, I mean, every paper says that's negative. And yet people do it, and we don't look down on people for doing it. We get it that there's some non-monetary angle to that where, oh, people are chasing a dream. We kind of approve of that. I, I think you're partly right there, but there have been surveys that have shown that wealthier people who play the lottery tend to do it just for fun. But they've shown that lower income people who play actually do cite financial reasons as part of the motivation. My friend Derek Thompson once referred to it as a, a prayer against poverty, which is a really sad way to think about it. But for some people, it is. And so the question is, when you're talking about the, the state's culpability here and should it be encouraging people, in how many cases is it just giving people an, an outlet for a little bit of fun and getting some education revenue in the process? And in how many cases is it giving people the, the false illusion of hope that they're one ticket away from paying off their debts? Yeah, and if you listen to terrible um, talk radio like I do, um, yeah. <clears throat> you hear some really misleading advertisements on the lottery that very much frame it as an investment in your future. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I right. don't listen to that much terrible talk radio. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm not suggesting you do. <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah. But that's a good point. That tells you why the state that operates the lottery thinks people are playing it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Okay, we're going to move on to the numbers round. Jordan Ellenberg, to my right, would you like to tell us your number today? Sure. My number is $1.3 billion, and that is the number of dollars of profit that Walmart's subsidiaries in Luxembourg were able to record last year. And that's, I mean, we should be impressed. That's an amazing amount of profit. $1.3 billion. $1.3 billion for a country of 500,000 people, about twice the size of Madison, Wisconsin. What's even more amazing is that Walmart doesn't even have any stores. <laughs> In that country. Now, that is that is clever. So how do you get profit in a country where you don't have stores? Well, of course, the way you do it is by sort of having a fictional shell company in that. When I say fictional, I don't mean that anything illegal is taking place. I mean, these are sort of the usual legal mechanisms by which you, by accounting tricks, move your profit into a place where the tax burden is going to be. Inc it's like homeopathic. I mean, it's incredibly low. <laughs> Can I? I haven't gotten a chance to read up on this particular case, but I want to venture a guess. Does Walmart keep its IP rights, like its brand rights? in Luxembourg or something? Because I can imagine that might be the technique they're going for. A lot of companies will move the rights of their trademarks to so a like shell So like a little company. piece of paper sitting yeah, inside a box. Yes, basically says, okay, our, our shell company in Luxembourg now owns the Walmart logo, and uh, we're now going to pay them for the right to use that logo. <laughs> thank yeah, you. Thank you so much for this wonderful deal you've given us. Um, is, is that the is, Delaware of the Alps. It's not going to make more sense than that, I, yeah, I wager. That's probably it. So what about you, other Jordan? Um, my number is $3.3 billion, which is the number of dollars Donald Trump says his name is worth. He, he, is. Should, he should move his name to Luxembourg. Yeah, so He'd save a lot of money. Can he move himself into a box in <laughs> Luxembourg? So a, a little bit of detail. Uh, Mr. Trump uh, is running for president or, you know, he says he's running for president. He's launched a campaign of sorts. I, I'll really believe it when he actually files everything with the FEC. But anyway. By the way, to interrupt you, there were reports that he paid people to come to his rally. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> and I can't even. But so as part of his big announcement, he put out a financial statement, which he's done before. And in this financial statement, he said he was worth about $8.7 billion, lots of assets, very little debt. But the biggest one of those assets was the $3.3 billion that he said his brand, his licensing deals, and some of his management contracts with hotels were worth. And 
I mean, this is sort of absurd on its face for a variety of reasons, but the biggest one is that he's basically taking the income he gets from licensing his name to various hotels. And what you have to remember about Trump is he doesn't really build a ton of stuff anymore. He slaps his name on buildings that other people are putting up in Asia and such so that they can then charge higher prices as like a luxury development. And he gets paid for that. And so he's taking that income and he's capitalizing and saying, that's worth $3.3 billion. There is nobody in the world who would pay $3.3 billion for those rights. And it's just patently obvious to everyone. But there are two things about this. One, at least he's being honest about where he says his net worth comes from. But number two, and I noted this in a piece earlier this week, this is actually almost a little bit of humility on his part because two years ago, <laughs> two years ago. I just want to interrupt. You can only understand Donald Trump if you compare it to himself. Yeah. Two, <laughs> two years ago, the Trump organization said his brand and his name was worth $4 billion. Oh, so wow. even right. Donald Trump understands that his name is not worth quite Gone what down it once by 20%. was. As I, yeah. Anyway. Well, okay, my number is $6.2 billion, and it's the number of dollars that Fitbit is now worth as a company. It went IPO this week with a big pop. Well, there's an estimated 21 million Fitbits. Those are wearable devices you put on your wrist to sort of count the number of footsteps you take in a, in a day, etc. So that's around $300 per wearable. Of course, we don't evaluate companies in exactly that way. But So what's interesting to me about this is that the things I've been reading do evaluate the Fitbit company based on these hardware, this this these wearables, devices. And the question is, like, how many people are going to buy these wearables? How many are they going to buy new ones when the first ones break? But I really feel like this whole thing is really all about data. Maybe because I'm obsessed with data, but, like, really what it's about is, like, getting employers to have their employees wear these and then collect the employee data, which is another thing that Fitbit is doing. It, Kathy, was it, just asking a question, is it legal for, like, my insurer to like buy my Fitbit data from Fitbit and use it to calculate my rates. They like, sorry, you're like not walking enough. We're charging you a higher rate. Can they do that? So there are these things called wellness programs proliferating all over the country. And they essentially don't frame it like you have to do this. They frame it like if you don't do this, we'll charge you $50 extra per month in insurance fees. So they frame it as we'll give you a discount if you do it. (laughs) Give you a discount. As opposed to, yeah, if you don't do it, then you're not going to get your discount. And it's like, wait a second. (laughs) And the other thing I want to add is that you actually want your insurance company to have this um, because the alternative is for your employers to have it, um, (laughs) in which case it's not protected by any um, privacy laws. If your insurers uh, are, have their hands on it, then it is protected. So it's crazy, though. The whole thing is crazy. The, one other crazy thing about Fitbit, to me at least, is this just seems like a product that Apple is out to decimate with the Apple Watch. At some point, just you know, level Fitbit. I mean, it, the, the Apple Watch collects all that biometric data itself. So the, the IPO that it had, it just I did not expect it, it to pop the way it did. Yeah. I really thought that given that Apple is basically stalking this company uh, like a hunter in the woods or something. Right. <laughs> would, well, there's would bring a, it down its value a little bit, but th- maybe There's not. competitors uh, like Apple, but there's also cheaper competitors, so yeah. it's a, it's a really good question. Anyway, but Okay, well, that's it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. If you like the show, please subscribe. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes Store, and if you like it, please do leave us a review. Um, I guess you can leave a review if you don't like it, but we prefer people who like it leaving reviews. Uh, you can also write to us at slatemoney at slate.com. Our producer for Slate Money this week was Stan Alcorn. For the last time. Oh. 
Oh my Stan. god, that's right. Stan. <laughs> Stan's leaving us. Oh, for bigger and better. Killing me. Stan, do you mind uh, telling our listeners where you're heading? Um, no, yeah, I can tell you I'm going to be a reporter producer at Reveal, this new investigative radio show at the Center for Investigative Reporting. Which is cool. That is so cool, Stan. Wow. Hell. But yeah. we are going to cool miss you. We're uh, very so, much we're going to miss again, you, Stan. Thank you. I will miss you guys. <sighs> our managing producer is Joel Meyer, and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Slate Money is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.